0: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, your host, and the clinical microbiologist and the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. For today's episode, we welcome Ben Loveno from our product management team at Mayo Clinic Laboratories
1: for a test and focus interview. Thanks for the introduction, Dr. Pritt. Today, we'll be discussing our new CIDP evaluation with Dr. Div Dubey. But before we get started, Dr. Dubey, thanks for joining us today. Would you mind telling our listeners a little
0: bit about yourself and your background? Thank you, Ben, for inviting me to talk on this topic. I'm Div Dubey. I'm one of the consultants in the Neuromonology Lab. I've been trained in autoimmune neurology, neuromuscular medicine, So half of my time I spend in the neurologic uh, clinical or development lab and the remaining time I spend seeing patients. On the patient side, my focus is primarily on autoimmune disorders affecting the central and the peripheral nervous system, which includes a lot of autoimmune neuropathies, some of which we'll be talking about today. Right,
1: great, thanks for that introduction. It sounds like these are really complex patients that you'll get a chance to explain today. And this evaluation should really help. So I'm going to try CIDP, chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy. That is what this
0: evaluation is all about. Is that correct? That is correct. This is a very important disease. We see it many times in our clinical practice, and often it is misdiagnosed. So having specific diagnostic tests, which can help managing physicians' Uh, all over the world to come to an accurate diagnosis so they can potentially treat the patient is very helpful. Because the other important thing with this disease is it's a treatable disease. Many of the neurological problems we are faced with, including neurodegenerative disorders, even after the diagnosis, there's not necessarily a cure. Here, I've had patients who've become totally symptom-free with early diagnosis and appropriate treatment.
1: That's great. Really exciting. So let's start with the assay itself, Dr. DeBay. Can you give us an overview of what this CIDP evaluation
0: will consist of? What we have realized over time through some of the work we have done, as well as a lot of work which has been done in Europe, is about 15 to 20 percent of all CIDP cases have these antibodies against the nodal, paranodal region of the nerves. The two of the these antibodies, which have been validated across multiple labs, one is Neurofashion one hundred and fifty five, and another and one is Contactin one. So these are the two antibodies our lab has focused on, is introducing as a combined assay for CIDP. The way we are testing both of these antibodies is through cell based assay, but the types of cell based assay are different. Neuro Neurofashion one hundred and fifty five is being tested through a live cell-based assay or flow cytometry assay, whereas the contactin one is being tested through the regular uh, run-of-the-mill fixed permeabilized CBA. And the reason we utilize two different assays for these is lies in our importance we put on assay specificity. In our experience, we thought these are the two assays which performed the best and were most useful to bring up in our clinical uh, practice and offer to the providers all across the world. So the, even in the neurofashion, we had to make some tweaks. So when we were studying neurofashion 155 and trying to validate it using the controls and the CIDP samples, we realized if we you check for neurofashion 155 pan IgG, we were getting a lot of false positive cases, cases which did not fit the clinical description of what has been reported in association with nodoparanodopathies with this antibody. That's why we focused on just the IgG4 subtype. So when people order our assay, the results they will be getting would be neurofashion 155 IgG4 positive or negative. Whereas for contactin 1, we realized there wasn't a significant difference between the pan-IgG and the IgG4 in the assay we are utilizing. And on the contrary, we were missing some cases when we used IgG4 only. That's why we went with Pan-IgG instead of a a subclass of IgG for contactin-1.
1: Great. That's a really good overview. There's a few things that I want to dig into a little bit. First, I want our listeners to know that we already have a standalone for NeuroFashion 155. So that evaluation is going to be rolled into this new one. The test itself won't change. It's
0: just going to be paired with contactin to be more comprehensive. Is that right? That is correct. And that's a very important point because... I see patients with these particular antibodies in my clinic and when they come to my clinic, the first time I meet them, I find it hard to distinguish which of these two antibodies is the patient going to have. So having a comprehensive test which covers both these antibodies will actually make my life easier in terms of figuring out what the patient has. As time goes by, there are certain clues which can help you distinguish whether it's going to be neurofashion 155 or contactin one. One important clue for contactin-1 is membranous glomerulonephropathy. As these patients can have kidney disease and they can excrete a lot of protein in their urine, and uh, that's usually not seen in among neurofashion 155 cases. Another interesting phenotypic difference I've come across with contactin-1 is something called a CISP, which is a variant of CIDP, a sensory predominant variant, where just the sensory roots are affected, not necessarily more distal nerve segments. So these patients can have completely normal EMG nerve conduction studies, and only abnormality we find, or the demyelination we find, is on somatosensory evoke potential. So we have had a handful of cases with this CIDP variant phenotype who are contacting one positive. So that's the other caveat where which helps distinguish between neurofashion 155 and contactin one. Other than that, many of the patients I've seen who come in with weakness, some distal involvement, numbness, neuropathic pain, and demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy, it can be very tough to distinguish that.
1: That's really interesting, Dr. Debye, and I wanna get into the patient presentation a little bit more, but it sounds like, I mean, this is a very rare disease to begin with, and then you talk about those subtle clues I think it does make logical sense to pair these two antibodies up together just because it seems really challenging.
0: These antibodies not only help us with diagnosis, they also provide us crucial information about how to treat these patients. As we know, CIDP is a very immunotherapy responsive disease. When you give these patients IVIG, I've had patients who were come to my office in a wheelchair and four months later when I meet with them, they're nearly normal, except for mild weakness. They've come back to their baseline before the disease started. But this is not the case in patients who have these antibodies. I've seen some initial response with IVIG, where the first few infusions, they feel things are better. But then sort of things revert back to status quo before they were on the IVIG or they stop responding. So detection of these antibodies can identify patients who are gonna be refractory to IVIG and require more aggressive measures or alternative immunotherapy medications such as rituximab, which can be very useful and very beneficial for these patients. So it's, it not only helps us identify these cases, it also tells us what to do with these cases.
1: That's really interesting, Dr. Debate. I'd just like to go back to the assay itself for a moment and have you provide the appropriate level of detail for our listeners to unpack why we chose a CBA over maybe a Western blot or another methodology. Is there a reason why contactin is better on
0: CBA methodology? The, the idea behind choosing a CBA over a Western blot or or enzyme-linked immunosorbent you know, assay primarily comes from our prior experience working on Cell surface antibodies, and what we have realized through our experience is uh, utilizing CBAs for antibodies which have sort of conformationally dependent binding. We end up getting better specificity as well as sensitivity. An example of that is Aquaporin four, where we were initially sort of venturing into utilizing ELISAs, and we realized we were missing a lot of cases. We were also seeing a lot of false positive cases, and then we transitioned to use. Uh, initially, a fixed CBA, then a live CBA, and our sensitivity specificity clearly improved. More recently, we have seen something similar with MOG, where the ELISAs were generating a lot of false positive results. We haven't done those things for contact in one, but through the learnings of aquaporin 4 and MOG, we wanted to go straight to utilizing CBA because this is another antibody where we think the antibody itself is pathogenic. And it goes and binds to the nerves and causes the disease process.
1: That's great. Thanks for that detail, Dr. Dubey. The other thing I'd like you to highlight for our listeners is how this is the next step in our phenotype-specific approach to testing. Can you just elaborate on what this phenotype-specific approach means for a neurologist
0: and how does it make their ordering easier? So most of the patients, when we see in our neurology clinic, specifically for neuropathies, the stepwise approach is history, physical examination, then electrodiagnostic studies. And then based on the electrodiagnostic studies, I usually recommend identifying a particular phenotype of the neuropathy and then doing further work up from there. Because then that allows you to ask specific questions and look for specific antibodies associated with that disease. And that's what we are trying to do with our phenotype specific evaluation in the neuropathy space. So we have an exonal evaluation, which is looking for antibodies which can cause exonal neuropathies. And here we are offering antibodies which can cause demyelinating neuropathies or antibodies, which can, if you think of a nerve to be like copper wires, these antibodies are causing damage to the insulation of the copper wire and then causing neuropathy. So having that sort of algorithm in our beaten into our brain through residency and fellowship that's how we want these assays to be utilized. Clinical assessment, electrodiagnostic assessment, and then figuring out which evaluation would be most pertinent for the patient.
1: Great, thanks, Dr. DeBay. I've heard you say this at another consultants at Mayo Clinic, but if we test too broadly, even though these patients are very hard to determine exactly what test to order, if we're too broad, it can just add to the confusion. And uh, I think a narrowed evaluation that answers specific questions is most helpful. And that's what I think I heard
0: you say. And if the physicians take those few steps I talked about, the pretest probability of these tests improves significantly. Great,
1: That's a great segue Dr. Debate. into, I want to go back to patient presentation. You touched on specific clues on how to delineate between the two antibodies, neurofascin and contactin. But paint the picture a little bit more broadly about what a CIDP
0: patient looks like and what circumstances this test would be most appropriate. Most of the patients who have CIDP usually present with weakness involving their lower extremities predominantly. In patients I see in clinic, they often have both proximal, that means weakness in their thighs, as well as distal, that means weakness at the level of their ankles or below. What I've seen, which helps distinguish some of these nodoparanodopathies to some extent, especially in 155, is the distal predominance in the pattern of weakness, where they present with weakness at ankle or below the ankle far more commonly compared to the significant proximal weakness we see in many other patients with demyelinating neuropathies. The other things which I've seen which can serve as red flags is presence of neuropathic pain the typical cidp is usually a painless disease what i tell the, the the trainees i work with is if you are seeing a demyelinating neuropathy with significant amount of pain start thinking about alternative diagnoses including nodoparanodopathies poem syndromes and other potential demyelinating neuropathies so pain could be a red flag the third thing which is helpful is presence of significant sensory ataxia and what i mean by that is Loss of joint position sensation, which makes the patient very unstable in dark or when their eyes are closed because they don't know where their feet are in space. In addition to that, what we have found in some of the cases, these patients can have cranial neuropathy, so facial weakness, facial numbness. They can have papilledema, that is swelling or changes seen on fundoscopic examinations, suggesting swelling at the back of the eye or the optic nerve disc. These are all subtle features which can tell you that this, these patients would be at higher risk for having these antibodies. And like we discussed before, there are even more finer points which can help distinguish between the neurofashion 155 cases and the contacted one cases, including the cyst phenotype and the membranous nephropathy. All that being said, many a times, in patients who have demyelinating polyridicular neuropathy, it can still be difficult to say with certainty who's going to be positive, and who's going to be negative. So in my practice, when I'm seeing a patient who has either subacute or chronic demyelinating polyureticular neuropathy, I'm leaning towards ordering these tests consistently, given the importance of what the positive antibody result gives us, not just a diagnosis, but also a path to treatment.
1: That's really helpful, Dr. Debay. I'm glad that we got into more detail there. Now, what about Maybe a patient presentation that looks similar, but should not drive a physician to this type of testing. I've heard ALS mentioned in this space. Are there indicators where you know a physician, hey, don't order this test because it's very unlikely that it's going to be positive? Can you give us any clues there?
0: That's a very important question. I think if we follow the stepwise methodology and the phenotype-specific methodology I'd sort of suggested early on, the chances of uh, unnecessary ordering of these tests would go down. So clinical assessment, electrodiagnostic assessment, and then paring down the number of cases who have either subacute or chronic demyelinating neuropathies and ordering these tests only in those. That would eliminate some of these other presentations, such as motor neuron disease, where which can present like with motor predominant presentations, or other exonal neuropathies, which can have weakness and just on face value when you're examining the patient can have similar assessment as a CIDP patient.
1: Right. So you have to take those steps beforehand. Now, you'd already talked about this a little bit too, but how the tests drive patient care. You mentioned that a lot of these patients are therapy refractory. Maybe expound on that a little bit uh, about what the second or third level treatment would be. And also, is is there any oncological association with antibody positivity here in this eval?
0: There are actually the two important aspects I would like to highlight. One, as I, as, as I initially said, even though CIDP is a diagnosis as neurologists, we all have come across in our clinical practice, it's still a difficult diagnosis. Despite having these diagnostic criteria, the EFNS and PNS diagnostic criteria, a significant proportion of CIDP patients are misdiagnosed. And nearly all of these patients, by the time they come to our clinic, they have some disability. If the diagnosis is not made early or if they are misdiagnosed, the amount of disability they accrue significantly goes up. So by providing these tests, we potentially are helping in diagnosis of some of these patients, this 15 to 20% of the CIDP cohort patients. Secondly, as we had suggested, the antibody negative cases, the ones who are not going to have neurofascin, are contactin-1, they are the ones who respond beautifully to IVIG and they, they are the ones in whom I usually go to IVIG as the first line of treatment. And the patients who turn out to be positive for neurofashion 155 igg 4 or contactin-1, I don't even think about starting them on IVIG and go straight to rituximab. In some of these cases, if they're acutely ill, we start with plasma exchange with the goal of removing all the pathogenic antibody from the system and follow it up with rituximab because the important thing to keep in mind with rituximab, it can take some time to become effective. So if the patient is acutely ill, you want to take steps to acutely bring about clinical improvement. It's important to try and remove the antibody, the cytokine from the system, and that's where plasma exchange comes in to be handy. And then one point you asked about cancer association. For neurofashion 155, most of the studies which have been done have not demonstrated that there is a cancer Uh, any cancer association. Contactin-1, there are some few cases of hematological malignancies or even a case of thymoma that we had encountered in our study, which we had done, but it is not something which has been shown or demonstrated across multiple centers. So as the number of cases for contactin-1 grow, we would have a clearer answer about this. But so far, what we know about this, these antibodies, even if there is a cancer association, it's minimal. Thanks, Dr.
1: Dubey. That's a great summary of how these results can impact patient care. I love especially how even a negative result is going to add value and that it's good news for the patient and it, it helps the physician determine the right treatment plan. As we conclude, could you just highlight if there's any alternative options for diagnostic answers for this challenging
0: patient population? So Ben, I think we've we've done a lot of work in this disease already in terms of uh, research and understanding the disease, both clinically as well as immunopathologically. And we've narrowed down to these two particular antibodies, which we feel most comfortable and confident about, which have been tested and validated across multiple different labs. And we've packaged this into a test, which we have focused on making a highly specific test, which helps provide answers to physicians and providers world over. That being said, I want to highlight that there are other antibodies which have been associated with CIDP, which are not included in this test at this stage. One of them is Neurofashion 186. Another one is Neurofashion 140. And the third one is Casper 1. And the reason we have focused on the two antibodies we talked about, contacting one Neurofashion 155, and not these three, is because the amount of data for these antibodies is still somewhat scarce. There's more data being published and more people are learning about this, but still the amount we know about these antibodies and their specificities is somewhat limited. And in our own personal experience of testing more, more than 300 CIDP patients, we haven't clearly found any people to be positive for some of these antibodies I'd mentioned, which again tells us how rare these conditions are. So through the, the test we are offering, we have tried to focus on antibodies where we clearly know uh, the result would be beneficial for the provider as well as the patient.
1: I love that, Dr. DeBay. I just love another case where we're always evaluating our testing, the existing testing that we have, but also before we launch a test, we're doing a lot of research on what's out there and determining the best way. We're not overdoing it. We're not underdoing it. We're finding the best test that can add the most value. So. That's kind of my summary, Dr. DeBay, but what about you? What do you think is the key takeaway? Uh, What are you most excited about with this new test launch?
0: When we offer these new tests, one of the primary questions we ask ourselves being clinicians is when we are seeing patients in clinic, what is the test which would be most useful for us as well as the patients we are providing care to? And this is one of those tests where not only it's of diagnostic value, but it also provides us information about treatment and natural history of the disease. And the antibodies offered in this test have reliable data to support that they clearly mean, uh, they're clearly meaningful in providing care to the patient. This, this is a very exciting field of research and exciting field for lab medicine because we clearly know the CIDP is an immune-mediated neuropathy. And with these two tests, we are only covering 20% of those CIDPs. There's a lot more left to discover, to validate, and to offer as clinical tests. That's what I'm most excited about. These panels and these antibody profiles hopefully will continue to grow and will make it easier for us to provide care for these patients.
1: That's a great summary, Dr. DeBay. One step forward with several more steps to go and just appreciate partnering with you and Mayo Clinic Laboratories to be able to, you know, offer these things to patients and increase their confidence for this specific patient type. So thanks for joining us today, Dr. DeBay. Thank you, Beth.